You need to take a speed boost. I don't think sure. I will. Uh, I don't need to. You don't need to. Okay. Yo, listen. We are gonna just jump right into this because we have, I think, more than usual to talk about. A in this intro part, but B. The interview went a lot longer than I had anticipated, and that's not a bad thing at all. But I was like, oh, yeah, what, what else could we possibly have to talk to Porcel about, about youth of today? This is like our 17th interview about youth of today. And fucking two hours later, that's we have like maybe, I'm just going to say it now, this might be my favorite interview of the past two years maybe it was I, I was like again also pleasantly i mean porcel's always great to talk to don't get me wrong but i was kind of like oh is there really anything else and for people that you know for the nerds like myself out there i mean we dive into the thanks list of the record and talk about different people thanked and and where they came from and you know we go on tangents about agnostic front and marginal man and verbal salt and rat boy and so much more it's just so much more. uh yeah so we won't talk about that too much because you can dig into the interview after this mm-hmm. well i think that it's already time to jason i'll go because i have two i'll go me you you crew i don't know if you have any anything <laughs> we have some we have three sponsors today wow so i wanted to make sure to uh you know, talk about them. So first Give off, we should have bow to uh, Siren Records, uh-huh. uh, based out of lovely Doylestown, Pennsylvania, suburb of Philadelphia, about, you know, close to an hour outside the city. Uh, record store has been around for over 30 years. Uh, always gets in the latest Rev releases. So whenever you see they have the, you know, ex- indie exclusive, Rev exclusive, whatever, Siren is going to get it. Um, they do mail order. They have a website, sirenrecords.com, uh, where you can be directed to their Discogs. Their Discogs has free shipping over $10. So really, almost any record you buy from their Discogs, you'll be able to get shipped for free. Um, and uh, through that website, sirenrecords.com, they, ha- they too have a Patreon with some really cool perks um, where you get actual, like, store credit towards final or CDs depending on your tier. So it's almost like you're contributing to the Patreon, but you're still getting that back in, in credit and you're helping out and you're getting some cool music. So sirenrecords.com. They're on Instagram as well. Always posting their uh, new arrivals and uh, finds that come in. So at sirenrecords.com on Instagram. Jason. Yo. Who's our next sponsor? Next sponsor, I'm psyched on. We've got uh, Jinx Proof Tattoos. Jinx Proof is a shop that opened up in D.C. in the mid-90s. And what you have to understand about Jinx Proof is it was one of the first shops opened by people directly tied to hardcore. So Carl that opened up the shop with Tim Corrin. I hope I said Corrin correctly. Um, he used to roadie for Turning Point. He's on the back of the Turning Point 7-inch uh mike mcturnan worked the counter there and so did jeff from better than a thousand um it's just a cool shop and our good friend tad works there um from set to explode 
and I've been tattooed by him. He tattooed Brian Baker. Um, it's just a cool shop with a lot of history. Have you been to it, Greg, or no? No, um, but yeah, Tad. Also, Warren Thin. Don't forget about Youngblood alumni, Warren Thin. Tad was in Warren Thin. Spit about to Youngblood Records. And yeah. also, Tad played in, uh, he did shows with Striking Distance. Um, I don't know if you caught, I think he played one of the Sound and Furies. He played one of those. I, but, I think uh, you're right, yeah. Set to Explode was awesome, too. I got to see them once. Yes. I think at Posse sure. Numbers. Might have been Posse Numbers 05. Anyway. Set to Explode played one of those? Yeah. Okay, sweet. Thought so. But um, anyway, so they're at uh, in Georgetown on M Street. And it's just a cool shop with a lot of punk hardcore history. And I've been tattooed there. It was an awesome experience. And I'm a person that's really strange about, you know, going to get tattooed. It's kind of this weird thing where you don't know, is the shop going to be cool? Or the people that work there going to be cool? But, you know, everybody that works there is cool. And they're, uh, you know, I went to go, you know, go in the mirror and check it out, make sure everything looks the way you want it to. And they had a uh, New York City hardcore, the way it is, poster framed, up in the back, you know, it's just took a and selfie. That felt cool. <laughs> new tag. I don't know. Poster. I don't know if I took. I don't know if I took a selfie. New, new poster. Who this? <laughs> I mean, if I had tattoos, I would surely get tattooed there. But I have no tattoos. So, well, I was going to say, even if you don't, if, you know, if you think, oh, I want to go check out the shop, I don't want to get tattooed. They also have cool shirts that Tag made that have this kind of town and country summer yeah. 80s feel mike, to it mike is always wearing it mike dc is always wearing a uh you know always has jinx proof merch on too yeah but um so uh check them out jinxproofTattoos.com, um at jinxproof tattoos and then at tad underscore dc if you want to see some of tad's work um all the artists are worth their great though so yeah bit of both. gotta love a hardcore owned shop and they're gonna know what you know, they, they're great at what they do and they're, they're going to know what it is you want, what you're talking about. And it just makes it probably so much easier for getting tattooed when you have somebody who, you know, has a frame of reference. It's the same thing with going into a studio with someone that actually knows what hardcore is supposed to sound like. It's a lot easier to, you know, get what you want when somebody knows what's up. So that's a great comparison, yeah. And finally, another sponsor that we have back into the fold, our friends at War Records. A um, lot of stuff going on with War. Uh, Berthold City uh, LP, When Words Are Not Enough, which actually features Jason on guest vocals, is in its second press. So there's a second pressing. First pressing's gone. Um, Bent Blue have a 12-inch Where Do Ripples Go? It's in three colors. There's a silkscreen B-side. The guitarist of Bent Blue plays in a band called Godhead with Javier. Never heard of it. So there's a little Ooh. tie it up in a bow. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Fixation from My Lovely Neck of the Woods, Philadelphia. The Secrets We Keep LP. There's still two colors available. Um, but one of the things I really wanted to touch on that's coming up uh, and you'll be able to hear the premiere of their the first single on uh, Monday the 19th. So by the time you're hearing this, you can actually pause it right now and you can go over to No Echo and listen to the song. But uh, a band called Cinderblock, 
Uh, Cinderblock was a band that existed in the early 90s. Uh, they did, I believe, a demo from Buffalo. And you may say, okay, they had a demo from Buffalo. Why is this a big deal? Well, I'll tell you why it's a big deal. Because uh, this features some people, names you may recognize. Scott Vogel. We all know Scott Vogel, Buried Alive, Terror, World Be Free, uh, with, with Andrew from War Records. Uh, Despair, Slugfest. Um he does vocals along with Tim Redmond, who was in Snapcase, is in Snapcase, right? Yeah. Uh, and also Dennis Merrick from Earth Crisis Drums. And uh, I had the pleasure of hearing one of the songs on here. Uh, so what happened is they did the, they wrote these songs in the early 90s. They were never properly put to tape. And they went in recently and re-recorded them with... Uh, producer and it's got a really cool vibe it's has that 90s feel you hear the groove of something like quicksand and the intensity of inside out but you can still also hear melodies like verbal assault and uh stuff of the 90s like earth crisis and Snapcase. uh it's really cool and it's awesome that war is going to kind of bring this to light dust it off and clean it up nice and uh, pop it up there. So check out no echo, uh, net. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that when Vogel lived out here on my coast, you know, of course he had terror, one of the most prolific hardcore bands of all time. And then world be free, as you said, with Andrew Klein and Rev alum, Sam Sigler. And then he moved back to Buffalo. And what do you know? Buried Alive is more active again. And then we see this cinder block come to light. Yeah. And for me, you know, a a connoisseur of 90s hardcore, especially mid to late 90s. And this is more early 90s. And the demo songs are, there's at least two songs on YouTube. It's a little hard to find. You have to type in like cinder block demo Vogel for these songs to come up. You have to put the Vogel in there because otherwise it's just a bunch of guys working with concrete, making walls, cinder block demo. <laughs> so the songs that I've heard on there, you can hear like, you know, Buffalo kind of had a, a specific sound, I think, especially like the early, the Snapcase 7-inch and like Slugfest and, you know, some of these other bands, uh, No Way Out, I think there was a band uh, against all hope zero tolerance. Yeah. ZT. And so it's got threads of that, but what I heard immediately was earth crisis drum sound and like some kind of fills, which then comes from Dennis Merrick, who was not the original earth crisis drummer, but is the one that of course we all know and love. And then it's interesting that Tim Redmond, who's, known to us as a drummer is one of one of the vocalists on this, which is in and of itself a very, very nineties hardcore phenomenon. Yeah. You don't see that too often. And I'm not always super fond of it, but it, you know, it, if it works, it works. So again, like you said, really cool to see war um, bringing this stuff out and all of the other stuff uh, you mentioned also enact. We got to throw some shine in there, um, bit of bow to my dude Thomas from Enact. And 
yeah, it's just cool to see uh, war being so active and and really, you know, and putting out new new bands, uh-huh. but then still doing, you know, something like this that's just a cool project something yeah. that, that normally would have just sat on a sh- you know like it's a demo sure i mean i'm sure people hearing this spot right now have never you know there's a lot of people who probably never heard of this and now they're going to check it out and you can get all the latest war releases on www.war-rec rec like for records.com um they always have cool colors cool packaging cool everything yep uh, I, I don't really have anything to shout today. I, I, I don't think that I do. Um, so do you think there was, I have time. one more thing. What, what else you got? So I did want to say, I saw today, I don't know how long it'll be up. You can cut this out if it comes off, but, uh, it looks like Godhead is selling some, uh, merch, some new designs, colorways and whatnot mm-hmm. through contrabandgoods.com. Yeah. And, and correct. Also. So it's what mid to late September right now. We're talking in our group chat today about going in the studio to, to do two brand new songs. Um, We have music written for, I think seven or eight songs. We're going to, we're going to shoot for a full length Mm -hmm. one of these days. And uh, so we're, we're, Hey, we're moving forward and like war records, I have my own label, Contraband, and I got to say that seeing War Records put out a blend of new hardcore bands and classic stuff, it's very motivating for me. You know, we just put out a tape and have another one on the way by a a vegan straight-edge band from England called Apothecary, X Apothecary X, heavy as fuck with a really good message. But then, like... And Take It to Heart from Orange County. Very, very good melodic hardcore invocation. New Krishna core from the Bay Area. But then, like, you know, I did the raid demo. Right. That, the, the first time, or like, it hasn't been on cassette since 1990 or some shit like that. So uh, it's it's very motivating to see people around me doing really cool stuff. So so anyway. Yeah, let's uh let's can, let's fucking we can, kick we'll it. continue t-shirt talk in the uh, <laughs> yeah, yes, outro. <laughs> so I think it's time to kick it. Can I kick it? Kick it, kick it. Yes. Some of your books are on a bookshelf back there in that corner as well. All right. I'm coming to claim them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I guess I I blew that having my say. And I I literally was thinking all week, I got to ask Parmenenda about this. So if I think of it, I'll I'll, 
Oh, well, come can I bust my having my say? Yeah, do it. Yeah. Just because it. poor cell, they didn't want me to ask because it's been covered before. Is just this, is this a having my say or is this is not even a having my say? This is right. main. This is main. Is this main channel? Okay, listen. I'm not even, we're not even going to having my say it. We're just going to kick it right now. That's listen, fine. Jason is under the impression that we have never covered no, the history not, of youth of today I'm not under and the how the band started. I want that refresher and I want to just get a little deeper into what you wanted to do with youth of today, the change from violent children to youth of today, and maybe the discussions you had about starting what would be a revival straight edge band. Yeah, but youth of today can't close my eyes. The band was not straight edge. It's well documented that there was a dude in the band that smoked cigars. That is true. And I do remember that for the conversation. <laughs> but when Youth of Today started, did you say we're going to be a straight edge band? Yeah. We wanted to be the first band that had all straight edge members. And it, and it just took a while to, for that to happen. The drummer, we begged him. We pleaded with him not to smoke cigars. Like we tried to turn him straight edge, but he just wouldn't do it. And the cigars of all things. It's not like he's a a secret sipper or smoking on the ganja a little bit he smoking drank, cigars he drank he drank beer too oh, okay you not know what like, they say not, not like super off you know what they say half a beer once a year you're in the clear right that's in the that's in the straight edge bylaws i heard right jason uh, you know, but from i've never heard that before in my life <laughs> so if i haven't had one yet can i add up all yeah, why not? yeah 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 so you're about at a six pack now you know but really that was our idea because it was well known that every straight edge band up until that point didn't have all straight edge members. I mean, SSD didn't have a straight edge singer. Yeah, Chain of Strength. Well, Chain of Strength is after you. So oh, uh, yeah, I'm like after. But okay, so who were the bands, who were the straight edge, quote unquote, straight edge bands before Youth of Today? SSD. Minor Threat, SSD. Even Uniform Choice didn't have all straight. Minor edge. Threat, not a straight edge band, period. I will I will argue anybody that <laughs> it, saying Minor Threat is a straight edge band is like saying Chromax is a Krishna core band. This is not. I'm, I'm you know, they uh, when they redid Out of Step on the record, because on the single it said, don't drink, don't smoke. But on Out of Step, it says, I don't drink, uh -huh. I don't smoke. They, they literally made Ian do that because the rest of the man wasn't straight edge. So they wanted to reiterate that it was Ian that was putting it out. And it was kind of like this personal thing. Yeah. Him so and up, Jeff Nelson butt heads a lot about it. Yeah. yeah. So up until that point, there hadn't been a band that was completely straight edge. And that was our idea. Like we're going to have a band where every member straight edge and we're going to do this for real. Like we want to, we want to start a fire. You know, uh, our bass player was straight edge. Graham was straight edge. Um, but yeah, the drummer wasn't straight edge. But, you know, it was impossible to find a straight edge drummer. Just like there, was it, no, there wasn't any hardcore kids. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. Connecticut, in, in you know, suburban Connecticut. There was no hardcore kids anywhere. Mm -hmm. What to speak of a drummer. The drummer to this day is always the hardest member. Of the <laughs> that's why you have one drummer that's shared amongst many bands but when you got when you got the idea for doing we're going to do the straight edge band did you say we're going to be influenced by antidote we're going to be influenced by 
I don't know. I just want to hear more about that aspect of starting things. If you can remember that far back. Our idea was to have the music of negative approach and like all that, not really antidote. I mean, I love antidote, but they were pretty metal. Um, but like music of negative approach, you know, more on like the harder side, but have straight edge lyrics that were more on the positive side, like seven seconds, you know, cause seven seconds were a great band, but you know, their music was kind of light and we wanted music that was like heavy and like hardcore and thrashy with mosh parts and stuff like that, but with positive lyrics. So that was kind of like our idea. We were going to do really fast, gnarly hardcore, but we were going to make the lyrics a little bit more. Yeah. You know, I, I could see, I don't, I don't want to say parallels, but similarities between say ready to fight and youth crew. Right. Yeah. You have you have that caveman part. Yeah. And then like fast parts and and sing alongs chanting. That's exactly it. We mm -hmm. wanted it to be a little caveman ish. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. We wanted it to be we didn't want it to be refined. We didn't want it to be super technical. Although, you know, I like that kind of hardcore, too. I think that came more in like, you know, the the 2000s. You know, you got all those bands that were like super technical with like a million stop and starts. And I thought that was really that was kind of like a cool addition to, you know, throwback hardcore. I mean, when, when I hear gel today, I hear can't close my eyes riffs, uh, negative approach riffs. You know, these all these three letter band, uh, three three letter name bands that Jason likes. They have yes. those like caveman stompy stuff and then into like a faster like do that, do that, do that, you know, like it's it's. I don't want to say it's recycled, but it's like, it's a timeless style. Yeah. It's well, funny. the context of the time, you had agnostic front went, you know, cause for alarm and stuff. Like you did yeah. have a lot of bands going metal and Every you guys one, were hard, but not metal. Every mm -hmm. one of our favorite bands was going metal or rock or, you know, something. So this is 85. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. What'd you think of SSD when they made the, the, the change to like, break it up? It broke my effing <laughs> into pieces, you know, because we were so psyched because there was such a mystique about SSD, you know, you didn't have the internet. So you just heard like bits and pieces. They're like this gang and Al SSD is, you know, you see the pictures of him on the back <clears throat> record. He's like this buff, dude with a shaved head kicking people with a who shirt on you know and we heard that ssd you know we loved get it away i mean as good as the kids allowed to say it was get it away kind of pushed them in this new direction that even today no one's been able to copy you know what i mean it's sort of like you know it was almost like traditional hardcore meets black flag, but not really like they had their own thing and it was kind of noisy and it's just incredible. It's like a wall of power. And when we heard that they were going to put out a record called how we rock, I was like, that is the coolest name. It's going to be the hardest freaking record ever. Like I thought it was going to be their, you know, you know, opus to like incredibly hard hardcore and then when we saw the first i saw the cover i remember going into a record store because you know you didn't know you couldn't listen to things on spotify 
you had to go to the record store when it came out. You didn't, you didn't know anything about it. And when I saw How We Rock and I saw that cover, I just knew, I was like, it's over. And there's no way this record's gonna be good. Like, I thought they were gonna put How We Rock in sort of like a kind of hard, hardcore sense. But their thing was like How We Rock because they were trying to be a rock band. And then I took that record home and I was like, I remember me and Capo listened to it because I called him up. I was like, I've got to listen to this record. And he was trying to like it. You know what I mean? He's like, this song's not too bad. This song's not too bad. And I was just like, Capo, this record is a piece of garbage. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, it, 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 I don't know. You know, the follow up's we, worse somehow. Oh, yeah. Break it up's worse. Break it up, yeah. I, 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 I can kind of, you know, as like I'm a musician now, I can kind of, I can see bands want to progress, bands want to do stuff. But I always, you know, coming from a punk background, <clears throat> where, you know, when I was growing up and listening to punk, it was like, um, you know, Ramones, Sex Pistols, X-Ray Specs, Stiff Little Fingers, um, you know, uh, the adverts, you know, the plasmatics, the exploited Cockney rejects, you know, they were all part of that stuff that I was listening to in like, even the late seventies, early eighties. And it was so cool because none of those bands sounded the same. Everyone had their own sound. Like the dead boys didn't sound like the sex pistols didn't sound like the Ramones. Like everything had its own kind of flavor to it. And that was almost like the point of punk. Like, find something different and do your own thing. And that I like, like, I like a band like, you know, Fugazi where they come out and they progress and they play something different, but it's different. You know what I mean? They're kind of coming up with their own thing and it's super cool. It's not like our new thing is we're going to ape a sound of music that I couldn't stand in the first place. You know what I mean? Like we're going to try to be freaking Motley or we're going to try to be ACDC or something like that. That's not different. That's the same old shit. That right. Like we're, have. we're supposed to be the counterculture and you're now becoming a part of the culture. Yeah. And you're never going to do that music as good as Angus Young can do it. Uh -huh. Like why even try Do your own thing. You guys had something really cool. Like if you were going to move it into a different direction, they should have moved into their strengths and done something like really kind of weird and, you know, even more, maybe pushed it more towards like the noisy kind of thing. And uh, that would have been interesting to me. Like Black Flag. That's what I think. Like if they would have done something like My War, where they have maybe the slower but still more powerful stuff. Yeah. That so, would have been cooler than a song like Break It Up. To me, it was like such a huge step backwards. I'm sure it was like the music that none of us could stand when we were 15. And now you're going to play that music? like why why it's punk try to try to get your own voice try to do something you know novel or interesting or, or, or make it your own you know and it's funny that youth of today kind of gets pigeonholed like that oh you guys were just trying to play freaking standard paint by the numbers hardcore but they don't understand that there was no hardcore <laughs> you know we were trying to kind of like bring something back and it's not like youth of today sounded like negative approach or we sounded like you know uniform choice or we sounded like minor threat we had this thing that we're, we were going to do we were going to do our own thing and i think we kind of achieved it yeah i don't think it's really i was 
watering the lawn today and I was thinking about how it's a really lazy criticism to, to, to say that a band is derivative, you know, it, but youth of today, it's not really derivative of anything at, at any point of the band's musical career. You were, can't close my eyes. Yes, there were similarities and you wanted to sound like these other bands, but then with every subsequent release, you got a little bit more mature, but still keeping those like hard roots and, and keeping that hard sound, even on um, the, the, you know, the self-titled seven inch Ray's voice is still angry. And it's not that different from these previous releases, except for you guys learned how to play your instruments better. Yeah. Really, that, that's that. So you progressed, but you didn't progress down a road where you were playing this like stadium rock that you were trying to rebel against in the first place. And, you know, I think even more important than the music to our credit was we did something a little bit different ideologically. Mm. You know, we wanted to, we had this idea. We were going to be a straight edge band with all straight edge members. We were going to really push that all the things about the hardcore scene that we didn't like, we were going to be very outspoken against it which was almost like a dangerous thing back then, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's almost like even beyond the music, that was the, that was what made the band special. I think you're a vehicle. It's a whole so, package. That's what I always thought. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the whole package. It's not just playing the record. It's like, like you said, as a kid, when I got into youth of today and you like, look at the pictures and you see that it was like, it just has this whole aesthetic and vibe where you did, you felt like these are guys I go to school with. Like I go to school with dudes that look like this. Like I'm friends with people that look like this. I look like this. And it kind of made it easier to become a part of something. Um, I wanted to ask, what, what was your first time hearing Capo's voice? Uh, he sang for this band Reflex from Pain. Mm -hmm. And um, they played a couple of, sh they never, I don't think they ever recorded anything with him. But I did see him at the Anthrax. And have you guys ever heard that seven inch Reflex from Pain seven inch? I've got yeah, like it's, a it's weird the, bootleg tape of it. Yeah, it's 76% on guys, right? No, I don't know. I don't think, not on that record, it's none of the 76% okay. Later on, they got the drummer for 76% uncertain. That's what I'm thinking. But he didn't play on that on that 7-inch. That 7-inch was freaking incredible, I thought. I mean, I'd have to listen to it again, but when I was like 15, I thought, wow, that reflex. Yeah, the, the naps are on it. Bill and Todd Knapp. Gotcha. I don't and think they played on the actual 7-inch, though. Yeah, they're, they're both... Black and white? They weren't they weren't brothers. Oh really? They no. just happened to have the last name Nap, both of them? Yeah. Jeez. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, neither of them played. So on, you well, kind of knew anyway. You knew what you were what you were getting into. Like you knew like this guy's got a cool voice, a cool well, presence. Well, when he when they I, I only saw them, I think they played, they might have only played once at the at the anthrax. And Ray came out and he sang those songs and he made them so much better. 
Like it was sort of like his old little Ray Today thing. And he was so good as a front man. Like he used to do this thing where he would, where he would skank on his knees. What? He would kind of like mosh on his knees. It was like really freaking cool. I can't describe it, oh. but he used to do it all the time. And so he would sing the song. And then when the mosh part came, he would go in the pit and he would mosh with everybody else. He'd be like doing the knee mosh and like skanking and everything. And I was like, this is so cool. The singer's actually moshing with everybody else. Like, you know, you didn't really see that too much. You so know, the charisma was there from the yeah. beginning. When I saw that's the thing, he has that charisma where people are just like, you see why so many people latched onto youth of today and then later shelter because like, he's got that, it factor basically where you're like i want to i want what he's having you know like it's funny that you know when i heard that they kicked him out of the band i couldn't believe it like i was thinking he made the band so much better why would they ever kick him out of the band? that was the dumbest mistake they ever made but worked out for me <laughs> but yeah he was good like I, I i you know after seeing him sing for reflection pain i knew like this band with him singing is going to be but his voice wasn't like growlish like it is on no. um, can't close no. my eyes and like you know even can't close my eyes to break down the walls can't close my eyes to me seems like a little bit punker yeah just overall the presentation of it the feel of it yeah the vocals sure. i don't think he truly kind of you know caught his stride until break down the walls for sure yeah listen do you ha still have faith in the human race without a doubt <laughs> is it so that then ties me to my next question because positive outlook right did you have a positive outlook then and does that positive outlook like how do you maintain that and not to get all like pma tony robbins or anything but like i'm sure there's people out there who are interested in knowing how someone has maintained this outlook on life for so long. Like what's your secret? You know what it is? It's not that you just bury your head in the sand and you think, Oh, everything's freaking positive. And mm -hmm. like, you know, bad things are happening all around you and you're just trying to like paint a smile on your face. It's, you know, po positive outlook never was really about that. Positive outlook is more of like, um, you know, just having a life of gratitude for the things that you, you know, for the things that you've been given gratitude for it. You know, whenever I do interviews, especially about like youth today and stuff, I always try to like glorify seven seconds, glorify minor threat. You know, I got so much, you know, if you like things from youth today, we got so much from them. And, you know, I think that's the way you keep a positive outlook. Like if you have, you know, just gratitude in your life. If you have, um, uh, you know, good intentions, you have a purpose, you know, driven lifestyle. I think, you know, even though the world around you may shift, if you have a good kind of like core centered life, then that doesn't shift. You know what I mean? So things may shift around you, but you know, you're still the same person. You're coming at the world from, you know, from this place of integrity. And I think that's how you can kind of maintain, you know, a positive outlook actually it's not, how, did, it's not how did you have those ideas at such a young age though especially coming from listening to punk where 
it, it, it's not talking about that stuff. It, like all those bands that you just mentioned before, either they're not talking about anything or they're talking about uh, maybe more of a bleak outlook. We, I don't know how we stumbled on this at such an early age, but even when me and Capo were like, you know, 16, 17 years old, we kind of understood even like a Tony Robbins-esque kind of mindset that um, you, you make your life, you know what I mean? Like if you want, you know, instead of bitching about things that like are around you that, you know, are terrible and that are out of, that are out of your control, why don't you work on yourself? You know what I mean? If there's all this crazy stuff that's happening in the world that's driven by things like, you know, greed and, you know, uh, people don't have any empathy or any compassion, you know, for, for other people. And you can see how this is causing so much chaos in the world. You see people going to shows, they're getting drunk, they're beating people up. You know, then you make the change yourself. You know, that, that was always that, that was always a big thing about Youth Today, too, even from like the very first practices. It was it was like Straight Edge to us was a big self-improvement project. You know what I mean? Like we didn't like what we saw and, you know, we were just kids. So it was like what we saw in the scene. You know, we saw this violence that was driven by, you know, drugs and alcohol. And we saw people that just like didn't care about other people, you know, especially like when we moved to New York City, you know, the song Make a Change is about, fuck, man, there's so many people that are just like homeless on the street and people walk right by them. It's so messed up. You know, we're all like suburban kids. If there was a suburban kid in Westchester, if there was a homeless person in Westchester in my neighborhood, people would be like, oh, my God, we got to help this person. It was the weirdest thing moving to New York City. And, you know, you can get really hard hearted in a place like that where people are literally just walking over people that, you know, need help. Um, when we moved to New York, we we actually started this thing called called uh, Feed the Feed the Hungry. And we used to get together with like, you know, a bunch of hardcore kids. We buy like bread and peanut butter and apples and like bananas. We make little paper bags we would go down to Thompson Square Park and we and we would just like feed people because we just thought this is so messed up let's at least do something <laughs> you know we're uh we're bad brains and influence too with the positivity kind of showing that you could have that you know music but have a purpose without a doubt without a doubt yeah did you read uh what do you call it thinking uh, think and grow rich uh, I didn't even know that that song was based that was based on that book till much later. But I would have if I knew if I had known that. I got another lyric question for you. Since it's become something that's just kind of been recycled and used to a point where it's kind of a cliche, who was the song stabbed in the back about? Dude, I don't know, man. That's a. That's a <laughs> what do you think about that? What do you think about that? being kind of a crutch that a lot of hardcore bands rely on. Yeah, so many had that stabbed in the back type song. You know, it might have been directed at like SSD or DYA or just like that whole kind of thing of, you know, stabbing hardcore in the back or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or it might have been a it might have been a particular person. I don't know. Was that song on the the 
the reissue because it's not it on the is original. yeah it's not so, on the original that's on the connecticut fund i was gonna say there's oh, right. th what i really wanted to talk about um is there's a bunch of different versions of this oh my god i um, list should i should i read off the list Hit so us today. Well, what i what i know is i'm talking not, not necessarily pressings um but like mixes like there's the positive four seven inch right then there's uh -huh. the remix in 88 Wait, yeah. wait, wait. Even before that, even before we get to the mixes, you hit the studio and you record these songs, right? Yeah. Was was this your first time in a studio? No, I I had um I'd done that Young Republicans demo. Uh, and we recorded a couple of um Violent Children songs. Uh-huh. But I mean, I didn't know anything about it. It wasn't like that made me a veteran of recording i still sure. didn't know anything so where's this where's this seven inch recorded uh we recorded that at a small like a tiny studio in connecticut and the guitars came out if you can imagine this the guitars were even worse than on the positive force like they the guitars were just terrible like we came in there and there was some like really, really, really crappy amp at the studio. And I didn't have a distortion box. And so we just had to use the gain. And, you know, it was one of those amps where it was like the gain doesn't really do much. And so it just almost just sounded almost like an acoustic guitar, you know, playing hardcore. So it was terrible. So we knew that we had to redo the guitars. So, um, I was looking around for a studio and we were friends with Dave Stein from Albany, you know, Dave Stein and Steve. And I believe I asked Dave Stein, I was like, do you know of any studios? Cause there was no studios in Westchester. You know, I was still living in Westchester. And he said, um, let me give you the number of one of my friends from this band called the catatonics which was the drummer for seven seconds that guy Belvy, that was his first band and i believe they're from syracuse and um they had recorded at some they recorded that catatonic seven inch which is actually pretty good i don't know if you guys ever heard it no uh they recorded it at some place in upstate new york so i talked to that guitar player he's like yeah i'll take you to that studio and so I went to that studio myself and I re-recorded all the guitars at that studio in upstate New York. And that's what became the positive force one. The other guitars that you, you couldn't have used them. We were just like, we just got to use these as scratch tracks because the amp is terrible. And it says Kevin, uh, Kevin Seconds produced, produced. Uh, the original recording session. Yeah, is that the one with the bad guitars or have you done it? He didn't produce it at all. <laughs> we were like, well, I guess he's putting it out. So he's kind of like producing it. We just wanted to have his name on the back of the record. Yeah, really. yeah. Fair. Totally fair. You know, he didn't. And he then you remixed it with Fury in 88. Yeah. Did you, redo that, did you redo the guitars then? Did you touch yeah. it or did you just, you did? No, I redid all the guitars. Yeah. I, I, never really, I didn't even really like the guitars that we did in, at that upstate New York studio uh-huh and so is that the one that came out on caroline and then the caroline yeah. schism split release yeah they had okay 12. i just i just redid you know i re-went over all the guitar tracks on the tape is that um I, this is maybe more of a question for greg and jason because i don't know you know sometimes 
band members get get lost in the shuffle but the we bite version is it a different mix do you guys know to me yeah. hey the we bite yellow cover with yellow vinyl it, to me that's the best looking version of this record i think i think so it's okay. it looks like the caroline version but everything's yellow instead of red and then it's oh, a yellow I vinyl. See. it's yeah, nice. you can see it on it. discogs yeah i only have this the whatever this yeah it's 2011 I and then i have on the way i have the one with the other cover uh -huh, yeah. which we'll get famous to. 97 cover we'll i only have this little. on cassette i think at one point i might have owned the like 2011 or whatever version but i just have the cassette and it's caroline caroline schism so it's that uh that version 1988 caroline records so the 2011 version was alan douches I think did something Man, with remastered it, right? it says yeah he's really he was really good at remastering yeah yes. he was I like that guy and is is 2011 the first time that the extra songs appear no nah, they were on because my first time hearing this was the 97 cd with like that oh yeah, yeah. that's what i mean is is the newer but like the 12 inch version of the seven inch version yeah that you're holding right there jason that doesn't have extra songs right it's just the seven inch on a 12 inch, basically. Yeah, the extra songs are from Connecticut Fun. Right, and yeah. that doesn't appear until the really cool new artwork. What did you that, think? You mean what did you think when you saw this new artwork in 97? Um, I believe they redid all of them and, and put them out at the same time. Is that yes. they did? They did. Yeah, because I, I bought them all at the all same three. time at the store. I was, and I was super disappointed in that. And but the artwork was different people that worked on all three, correct? Because Tim Singer did one of them. He did. We're not in this alone. He Who probably did? did the best. He probably did the best job out of all of them. Uh -huh. He definitely did. Agreed. Oh, I really wish he kept that cover. It was such an iconic cover. Yeah. If he kept, if he just kept that picture for the cover and redid everything else, I think it would have been really cool. I wish they had him. I wish he redid everything but kept the covers. Although, you know, I was never a big fan of the Can't Close My Eyes cover. Did you guys ever see the original sticker that came with Can't Close My Eyes? No. I don't think so. Unless it's very high so. contrast, black and it white. Was even, it was even before we, we, made this, we made the sticker even before Can't Close My Eyes came out. It was our first sticker. And it was really cool. We took that picture. That picture was from the Anthrax at the second show. And we ran it, you know old school style we ran it through a xerox machine like 20 times that uh -huh. was the only you could get something high contrast and it was really really it came out really cool i feel like that's kind of this the similar look of the the positive four seven inch right it's like no. pixelated no. almost no it was almost like it was xerox so many times that it was almost like a silhouette ah like, uh, uh, didn't I have think any I have detail anymore yeah, it looked uh -huh. really, really, really freaking cool. Like I remember I did it and then, and then I did it at the copy place and then I gave it to the copy place to make stickers. And I remember, I remember it was like 50 bucks or something. I was like, fuck man, <laughs> so much money. And I was thinking like, God, I gotta pay my whole paycheck for these stickers. But 
And then we got the stickers back and they were so cool. They were like really, really good quality, like vinyl stickers. And just the way that it was like super, super high contrast that, that, oh man, I wish I had one. I'm seeing if I can find it. I bet it's at, uh, I bet it's at only, you know, the only hardcore sticker Instagram I'm sure has that in there yeah. somewhere probably yeah, I met that guy in europe he's super cool yeah um yeah, you said it came with the original positive force i think i've seen it it's got it's really high contrast black and really white to the point where it's almost like, like you know it almost looks like mysterious you know like a yeah that's it. there it is dude it yeah. does look good and that yeah. was much better and the x jumps out on ray's fist way and more so too. he gave the original picture to kevin and I said, hey, Kevin, just run this through a copy machine like 20 times and make it super high contrast. But for some reason, when he did it, it came out with like the Lizard Man cover. What's the Lizard Man cover? When that came out, I was super disappointed. Like I wanted it to look like the sticker. And it actually looked like Alien Ray instead of the sticker. Uh, I see what you mean. Yeah. So like the sticker was super cool and super bold, you know, with like. I don't know. It just looked way better. It any German, sure. any German listeners, you can get a copy of "Can't Close My Eyes," near mint media and sleeve on Discogs right now. Free shipping for uh, three thousand euros. Jump on it. So, who is this person with the eyes looking over? That's Paul from a band called Geek Attack, and he played bass, and they're. Guitar player was Danny Durella from Underdog. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. I think um, he played in, um, what other band did he play in? I think he played in a band with Carl Mosh, too. Okay. Maybe. In the, in the layout for the 2011 one, they did a good job of kind of documenting all the people that worked on the graphics yeah. beforehand. And it oh, and says, actually the sticker is on the inside. Oh, yeah, it is on there. Oh, cool. Oh, like, good. That's much better. Like if it was just like a really <laughs> stark, high contrasty black and white thing like that, it would have been way better. So in, in true. Oh, Jason, did you? Sorry. I yeah, know. I wanted to ask what it says here that the um, original Can't Close My Eyes graphic artwork and production by Tony Capo. So who is that in relation to Ray? Uh, I think he was the guy that that might have ran it through the copy machine 20 times. <laughs> Is it Ray's brother, Tony Capo? Tony Capo. That's funny. He, he screen printed our first Youth of the Day fist shirts. He made like 20 of them. You still have one? No. I wish I did. Yeah. So I'm looking at the, the thanks list and sort of on topic for two reasons. One, because I talked with Chris and Pete from Verbal Assault a couple weeks ago. And two, when this airs, they're actually starting their run of shows like this will come oh, out the yeah. day they start in DC. Can you share some, because I see you thank, you know, they kind of get an extra thanks, Pete and Verbal Assault, share maybe some memories of that. Cause they said they talked about rolling up to shows with you guys a ton in the early days. Yeah. We love those guys. Um, we really didn't hang out too much with the rest of the Verbal Assault guys, but we hung out a lot with Pete. Like we loved Pete. He was part of our posse. And the, the reason, the way that we met those guys was Ray was, was pen pals with Boofish from Rhode Island. And Boofish was in a band called Positive Outlook. That's where we got the name of that song from, his band, Positive Outlook. And he, Boofish just invited us up uh, 
to play a show. And we went up and we played a show in Rhode Island. It was with, um, it was actually with Seven Seconds. And so we met Boo Fish, we met Pete, we stayed at, at Pete's house and Boo Fish's house. And those guys were just so cool. We instantly became friends with them. And uh, Rhode Island had a great hardcore scene. Oh my God, it was so cool. Like, you, you never think like Rhode Island of all places is going to happen. Right. You know, you, you could play a show and you'd have like two, 300 kids going crazy, but they had a really good scene. Yeah, and I see you thank the Gor- the Gormans too. I'm guessing they're the guys that played on and off in Verbal Assault and later uh, Belly. Yeah, they were in Belly. I remember when I saw them on the cover of Rolling Stone, I was like, the Gormans have made it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see that? Belly were on the cover of Rolling Stone. Yeah. So crazy. Yeah, so, and I also noticed- and They were uh, nuts too. Those Rhode Island kids were freaking nuts. They had this thing called a winger. And it was like a giant slingshot that two people would hold. Like instead of having, you know, like if you have a slingshot when you're a kid, it's like a stick with two things like this with like a rubber band in it. And like you sling like this, but a winger is like a giant piece of rubber with like a little, with like a big thing that you can put stuff in. And then instead (laughs) of having a stick like this, you'd have two people hold it. And then one guy would like put something in this gigantic freaking rubber band and you could literally launch things like city blocks. And so we used to get together with those guys. We'd get together on bo- uh, we, and we would go on like rooftops with like a bunch of water balloons. And we would just take this winger and we would like launch these water balloons like into the next freaking neighborhood. And they would like hit cars and hit people. And we would just be laughing our asses off. They were nuts. <laughs> they were kind of like the sloth crew of the East Coast, those Rhode Island kids. And then pizza great guitar player too so it's kind of that had to be you know both you guys maybe trading riff secrets or something i don't know not Uh, (laughs) not not really we were kind of like ideologically at odds like he was real emo and um he was really against like any sort of kind of like what we would call now like toxic masculinity in the hardcore scene like he just wasn't into like any sort of like tough guy thing or almost to like, almost to a fault. Like I remember one day, um, I remember when Capo, we wrote the intro to take a stand. Did I tell this story before? You know, and you just, I, I'm glad to hear it again. And you should just start. Like, I think there's a version to take a stand where it doesn't have an intro to it. Right? I think on, on the Connecticut fun or something. Right? Yeah. Connecticut fun. It didn't have an intro. We wrote the intro later. And I thought it was so good. Like when we wrote that and when Kappa wrote the lyrics to the intro, I was like, Oh my God, Pete, we wrote an intro to take a stand. And it's like the greatest thing Ever. it's like this moshy thing and the lyrics are so cool he's like what's the lyrics i was like i see you hide do you have pride afraid to share what's inside but walk right you know i started telling the lyrics and he wasn't into it at all he's like how can you say that to people it's so kind of i don't know in your face it's like <laughs> i don't want to do that and i was like you just don't understand what we're trying oh man and i like it so much better with with that intro that yeah. intro i can't like the first time I heard it without, I was like, the heck's going he was, on? He I see almost, also. He was almost offended by the take a stand intro. 
Sorry, Pete. It's a great intro. But he was um, he was just on it. He was on an emo trip before there was emo. Like if you know, he Pete. talked about how he was more like in the like he was like even though they weren't from DC, like they oh. were Discord DC type guys. Which leads to my next question. I was going to say, I see you thank um, Kenny and Marginal Man. I love Marginal Man. Did yeah. you guys ever play with play yeah. with them? Play with them, and we were friends with Kenny. He's a totally cool guy. We were uh, we were we were friends with certain weird people from the DC scene, and Kenny was one of them. And another guy that we met super early was Roger from Dag Nasty, the bass player. We knew him way 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 before he was even in Dag Nasty. He used to be in a band called um, Bloody Mannequin Orchestra. Yes. Yes. No, no, it's banging. What a weird name for a band, man. We met him at Venus Records. (laughs) We met him at Venus Records in New York City. And um, I don't even think he knew you today. He just looked like a hardcore kid. And we're like, hey, what's up? You know, where are you from? He's like, oh, I'm from D.C. I'm in this band called Bloody Mannequin Orchestra. He was actually selling Bloody Mannequin Orchestra records to Venus Records. And, you know, he was just a hardcore kid. So we just kind of like talked to him. And uh, it was when I it was when we first moved to the city and, we were, and me and Kappa were living on 15th Street. And, was, and we were like, do you need a place to stay? He was like, as a matter of fact, I do. And so we invited him back to uh, to our house and he, he stayed at our house for a couple of days and he was like totally cool. We became friends with him. And it was weird because later on he joined Dag Nasty, which was like kind of crazy because, you know, they became one of my favorite bands. And I remember when we played DC on the Breakdown the Wall store, he invited us to the Dag house. And I remember being all psyched to go to the Dag house where they all lived in one house. And so he kind of paid us back. And that's when we kind of hung out with Brian Baker and stuff. So that was- I still think the schism interview, by the way, with Brian Baker is it makes me laugh every time it's just yeah, so how brown did that one that was that was one of the few uh interviews that i didn't do it's so funny and like him like basically like schooling brian you know, schooling brian baker about palehead existing yeah was like just funny and uh yeah i mean i love dag Nasty. that's why i even knew that only a fool wouldn't love dag nasty i mean mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I'm right here. I'm right here. You can talk to talk. Don't add me. <laughs> I forgot. Instead of stabbing me in the back, just say it to me. When that record first came out, I really didn't like it that much. I thought it was, you know, because back then I was like so deep into like hard mosh core. Mm. And it wasn't. Maybe that's like, my problem. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. There's it, nothing yeah. hard about that record at all. But what's yeah. funny is if you look at like, if you listen to the, the link stuff on Spotify, it'll always show up with bands that we all collectively like together. Mm. Far side. And I, um, I think that record came out just about the same time as the uniform choice record, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And so we were so into that uniform choice record. So I think it kind of eclipsed the Dag Nasty record, but after listening to it for like six months, it really grew on me and became like one of my favorite records. A lot of my, a lot of my favorite records were like that. I didn't like them when they first came out. Even the Clash London Calling, which is one of my favorite records of all time. When it first came out and I heard it, I was like, 
this doesn't sound like the clash mm. and you know you know slowly after like listening to it and really kind of wrapping my head around it it became it might be my f- most favorite record of all time mm. so and that's a testament to like not being in the digital age where like you would kind of give stuff more of a chance than just being like oh i'm on spotify i heard 30 seconds of this this sucks i'm i'm never gonna play this again like if you bought the record chance you'd be like well maybe i'll you know if the mood strikes and that's how you discover a lot of cool stuff that maybe sat on the shelf for a while yeah especially if you made that you know ten dollar investment back then you know to buy a record yeah yeah you had to you had to at least try to like it <laughs> so getting back to can't close my eyes what were your memories when this record came out and was something people could pick up in the stores what was the response to it what did you think when you saw and the released product? by kevin seconds too yeah it was a really it was a really wild time and all i can say about it is Kids out there, if there's any teenager, young kids out there listening to this podcast, follow your fucking dreams because they can come true. <laughs> you know, most people are just like, you know, most people to us, you know, for especially for me being so into music, to be in a band that was put out by Kevin Seconds on his record, you know, by, but, you know, to, for scratch seven seconds, just think like you're in a band and your favorite band's singer has a record label and they somehow out of the millions of bands want to put out your band. And then you're able to go on tour, you're able to play, you're able to like, you know, go to Europe and, you know, doors start opening up that you could never even imagine. That's exactly what it was like. It was so crazy. It was even like, it was so weird that we had this idea, you know, even even before we kind of sat down and actually, you know, did the band and like did the music and everything. It was just me and Capo talking about, we're going to do this band. We're going to bring back hardcore. We're going to be all straight edge. We're going to champion straight edge in a way that's never been championed before. And, you know, uh, it was so weird. We just had this idea and it kind of, it kind of manifested before our eyes. It's, it's, it's actually unbelievable. But, you know, if you have, you know, if you have something in your mind and you have a kind of like, you know, dream and an idea that you really believe in, stop everything else that you're doing and put 100% of your energy into that and take massive action into making that into a reality, which was basically what we did. We quit college. We quit our jobs. We quit everything. We put like 100% of our energy into that band. We ate, slept, dreamed. Everything was, was like youth today. And we just kind of like went for it. And it was amazing how just things just from ideas, things just started to manifest into reality. It's, it was a really magical time in our life. And it just kept getting bigger. That's, I think, the like I was thinking while you were, uh, while I'm looking at the liner notes, like this is recorded in 85. And the amount of time, like the band plays its last show in 89, right? So in four years, you guys went to Europe, put out this two full lengths, 
you know, later a seven inch, like, and it was really not a long amount of time, just a ton packed into it. Dude, not a long time at all. We started the band in the summer of 1985. Six months later, we did a West Coast tour with Seven Seconds. You know, by the next summer, our EP came out and we did a whole East Coast tour. Um, and then, you know, after being a band for only like, you know, even, even on that Can't Close My Eyes tour, it was like, you understood something's happening here. <laughs> you know, I mean, like there's some kind of shift in the scene that's moving in our direction. Like, I just think like the new breed of kids, they didn't want to hear how we rock. You know what I mean? They didn't want to hear cause for alarm. They didn't want to hear a bunch of like speed metal. They wanted to hear freaking hardcore and mosh and stage dive. And like, they actually wanted something with a little bit more substance than just like some negative bands just complaining about school and shit like that. And I think youth today kind of just filled that void where it was just almost like, you know, just the energy of the scene at the time just kind of moved in our direction. Yeah. And um, it was the right place at the right time, but also the right band and the right songs. Cause you can be in the right place at the, at the right time, but if you don't have the songs or the, you know, uh, live performance or the charisma, then it doesn't matter. And it was just all, it was the perfect uh, storm. Yeah. And you know, I will say this too. We put an incredible amount of work into that band. You know what I mean? We, we literally just dedicated our lives to that band. You know, we practiced all the time. We were writing songs. We were constantly thinking about how we can push this band forward, what direction we wanted to go to. We'd have band meetings all the time. You know, I made a Youth Today Straight Edge Fist stencil and me and Al that said Youth Today on it. And me and Al Brown went out like every single night risking arrests for like hours and hours and hours. You know, we got to like, and even when we played a show, you know, Al Brown would design the flyer. We would go to his school and we would illegally, you know, crank off like 300 flyers and then we would just go out we would like stay out all night we we paste them like everywhere like you couldn't walk down the street in the lower east side without seeing a youth today flyer for for our show it's just like we worked so hard at that band put so much time and energy into the band like it's almost like people don't do that anymore mm -hmm. like i you know i think it was I, I think it was just kind of a different time in life where you weren't so distracted by the internet and your phone and you know, whatever, you know, it, it was a time that, you know, especially in New York, you know, and, and, you know, at the time, like in New York City, you could get a shit apartment for like super cheap rent. And you didn't, you didn't even have to work full time to pay your rent. And you really could, you know, dedicate a lot, you know, that's basically why we lived in Lower East Side. You know, I wish we lived in the Upper West Side, <laughs> it would have been a lot safer. But, you know, it was just, it was because of the band. Like we want to not spend a lot of money on rent and we want to spend the least possible time amount of time we could spend working. And we want to dedicate all our time to the band. And even when we weren't doing the band, we were like doing record labels and we were doing fanzines and we were, you know, we didn't waste a lot of time. 
And that was another secret of, of success of the band. We were freaking driven people. And, um, you know, I think, you know, and it's funny because, you know, if you, if you read books, you know, like Think and Grow Rich, and if you like, you know, read Tony Robbins books, that's what, that's what they recommend doing. Like, you want things to change. You want your life to change. Figure out what direction you want to go in you know, really kind of think about it and really, you know, come up with a, like a cohesive plan on the direction that you want to direct your life in instead of being so reactionary and like, you know, wherever the turning of, of the world is going to kind of push you in, that's no way to live. You know, you have to direct your life in the way and design your life in the way that you want it to be. And then you take massive action in that direction and you don't get distracted and, you know, it was, you know, it was almost like we didn't even know about it, but we were on like a Tony Robbins kind of plan for, for the band. So it was a lot of right place at the right time. It was a lot of like luck. It was a lot of, you know, you could throw a little bit of destiny in there and, you know, a whole bunch of hard work. And man, things really started to open up for us. It was, it was, it was pretty incredible. And like you said, it happened super fast. Yeah. Do you remember the first Youth of Today show? Yeah. It was with Agnostic Front. We were, were at Anthrax? No, it was in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut at this club called Sal D's. And we were friends with Agnostic Front because Violent Children played with them a bunch of times in Connecticut. And uh, did you know that Agnostic Front actually asked Kappa to play drums? No. After, uh, like, very shortly after Victim in Pain came out, their drummer quit. And they actually asked Capo because they knew him from Violent Children playing drums, and they tried to get him in the band. And it was right when we started Youth of Today, and he was like, nah, man, I think I'm just going to really try it. I'm really into this new band that I'm doing. But he could have played an agnostic front. Wild. But yeah. That one that wouldn't have gone well because I don't. Yeah, think we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we wouldn't be having this conversation then because he probably would have just, you know, devoted time you, to that or whatever. Can you imagine Capo playing uh, double bass on some of those subsequent aggressive like, front? Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> the no. Eliminator Capo playing on the Eliminator. You know, <laughs> he barely plays single bass. So. It's <laughs> I have to say, too, that like one of the cool things with Agnostic Front that I've learned even just from doing this podcast is how absolutely supportive Roger and Vinny were of other bands. Like they really seemed like they championed so many younger bands and like helped them out. They were incredible. I don't think Youth of Today would have been as popular in New York City if Agnostic Front didn't really just you know go to bat for us. Even when we, even when we first, even when I used to first start going, like I remember, um, uh, you know, even going to CBGBs for Violent Children shows. You know, see, Violent Children played, played CBGBs like a few times, and uh, I, you know, I used to go, and you know, it was a fucking scary place. You know what I mean? Especially for a suburban kid like me who didn't look punk. You know wearing his varsity jacket and Roger kind of took me around and he'd be like, Hey man, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so. And I, I quite honestly, I think he did it because I think he thought like these guys are from the suburbs. 
but they're really cool and they're sincerely into hardcore. And now they've moved to New York and they don't know what the fuck they're getting themselves into. <laughs> protect these kids a yeah. little bit. Yeah. By introducing to everybody so they don't get their ass kicked because you've got a varsity jacket on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I really appreciate that. And, you know, Vinny too. Vinny, he let me borrow his amp so many times. You know, who does that? Yeah. You know, I was nobody. Violent Shoulder Water, we're, we're fucking nobodies. You know, and he let me borrow his amp and it wasn't even like, uh, it wasn't even like I had to talk him into it. He was more than happy to do it. And so those guys were super cool to us. They were super welcoming to us when we first moved to New York City. And I'm sure that when we came out really big and heavy with the straight edge thing in New York City, it's almost unreal that we didn't get beat up. Like even Johnny Stiff used to tell us like, dude, you guys are going to get your fucking ass kicked if you like go on stage and start barking about barking in everybody's face about straight edge. Like you don't come to New York City and do that. Like uh, on the side of A7, it was spray painted out of town bands. Remember where you are. That was sort of like the mood. Like this is fucking our scene. Don't come here and start fucking it up. We will kick your ass. Like even, you know, I, I tell that story, like the fir very first time I went to CBGB's, I was moshing like super hard. It was, it was, it was agnostic from our plan. And I was moshing super hard and someone kept punching me in the back of the head. First, I thought it was just like a random elbow. But then as I was moshing around, I was like, somebody is repeatedly punching me in the back of the head on purpose. And I turned around and it was Jimmy Gestapo and he had... He had like judge, like construction gloves on. And he just kind of looked at me and he just kind of like went like this, like, yeah, motherfucker, I punched you. You're moshing too hard. We don't know who you are. Fucking chill out. Like he just went like this with his glove. And I just, I, it was just understood. Okay. I get it. This is your scene. I'm the new guy. You know, you don't know me. You know, it was almost like a very kind of protective thing of the scene. And um, I, I really think that, you know, we were protected in one sense just because of Roger and Vinny sort of really um, kind of stuck up for us and championed us and told everybody, yeah, Youth Today is a great band and stuff like that. So I have endless amounts of gratitude, you know, for both Roger and Vinny. They were so cool to us. And they got us our, they got you today, our first CBGB show, which was, a, which was a huge turning point for us. It was before we moved, we had moved to New York. It was right before we went on that seven seconds tour. It was, um, it was, it was before Christmas. And so it was like a big, it was right before Christmas, like December 21st or 23rd or something like that. And so it was a big deal. It was like the CBGB's Christmas show. And it was that flyer where he said agnostic front and i think it's got a skinhead and he's got a chainsaw and he's like holding a guy's head like he had just chainsawed off a guy's head you ever see that flyer i've seen that i'm trying to find it front some other bed and youth of today and um that was a huge turning point for us because it was such a big show 
And, you know, we played and we got such a great reaction. And Roger even said stuff on stage like, hey, man, give it up for you today. They were fucking awesome. And I think that was a time that we really kind of got accepted in the, in the New York scene was that show. So, yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of gratitude. They got us our first show. They got us our first CBGB show. They probably saved us from getting our ass kicked many, many, many times. <laughs> And, you know, all the other big bands didn't really do that. Like, you know, the Cro-Mags didn't do that. You know, the Leeway or, you know, any of the other kind of like bands that were, you know, getting bigger. Actually, Murphy's Law were kind of cool in that way, too. Not really to us because we were straight edge. <laughs> How was but, that? Seven? Know, oh, sorry. You know, to other bands, they were they were cool. Ray, Ray Bees was always cool, too. He was like from that old guard and he was always and cool to us little kids who are infiltrating the scene. How was that seven seconds tour? It was fucking, it was incredible. Yeah, where'd you play? Out at West Coast, right? Yeah, we played Reno, Sacramento, uh, Berkeley. That was so cool. Um, How, oh, sorry. Uh, when we played Berkeley, we played in this, it, 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 it wasn't that, um, not was Gilman. Gilman street. This was, this was pre Gilman street. Mm -hmm. probably. We played some like shitty ass warehouse. that was like a step above a squat and we were straight edge. And I remember fat Mike from no effects was heckling us the whole time. He was like drunk off his ass. And in between every single song, he was saying like, Oh, fuck you. You fucking straight edge fucking Nazis. Fuck off. Like, you just knew it. Like, who's this fucking kid in the front row? Like, as soon as the song stops, he's just going to like mouth off. Sounds about right. And it turned out to be <laughs> Fat Mike. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a really, that was a, that was a great tour. And it was, it was amazing how much hype we got from that tour. And, uh, it, you know, just the fact that, it was at a time where like the Chromax and Agnostic Front were hitting really hard in the scene. You know, like Victim and Pain was out, you know, I think Age of Quarrel must have been out. And uh, there was a lot of attention on like New York hardcore. And so we really got a lot of benefit from that attention that was, that was on New York at the time. And people were like, oh fuck, a hardcore band from New York, you know? Right. So it was it was cool. As a matter of fact, even the you know the very first time we played um, Fenders, we played Fenders on that tour, and the bouncers were from the LA Death Squad. It's like so stupid. You're gonna hire a a gang to be the fucking bouncers. Oh yeah, that's not a recipe for fucking disaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were hanging out with Dan O'Mahony. Um, uh, and this kid Murphy, you guys know that kid, you know that kid Murphy? No, I don't. He was part of that whole kind of like sloth crew scene in the early days, but he kind of dropped off a little quick, but he was like a little Mexican kid, like a tiny, skinny hmm. little Mexican kid, hung out with Daniel Mahoney, super cool hardcore kid. We loved him from like the first second we met him. And so we were hanging out for a few days and we had made friends with like Ryan Justice League um dan o'mahoney that kid murph john roa we had met we became friends with all those guys 
And so we played, we had met them before we played that Fender show. And um, it was like the second or third song in. I didn't know who the fucking LA Death Squad was. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. We didn't have gangs in like New York, like straight up, like killer gangs, like you're going to be killed and shot and stuff like that. Like I had no idea. Yeah, there's like, at that point, there's like Circle One and the lads yeah. and like, oh, all, it, it's oh hell yeah. John Messias was at that show. Uh-huh. And I remember, um, I remember I, we had heard of John Messias because he was sort of like a legend. And I remember, I, I remember Kevin Seconds being, hey man, see that guy right there? That's John Messias. And I didn't recognize, I, I didn't know what he looked like, but we had heard all these you know, fight stories on the East Coast. It's sort of like filtered into the East Coast of like John Messias from Circle One. He's the biggest badass on the West Coast. And um, I remember seeing him and be like, holy fuck, that's John Messias. Like he looked tough. You ever see that guy? He died pretty early. He got shot by the cops. You ever hear the story about how he got killed? Yeah. Like it took like, he got shot like, 10 times and he kept on coming for the cops. Like he was practically like a fucking Terminator. Like they couldn't kill him. Um, but I remember Kevin Seconds being like, watch out for that guy. Um, but he didn't tell us about LA Death Squad or anything. So it was like the third song in. And uh, they had a they had a barrier at the show because it was one of those like super shows with like eight bands. So it was like, it was practically like a festival before there were like festivals. And they had a barrier, but kids would get up on the stage to stage dive anyway. Like, like they didn't have like a no stage diving rule. So it was so stupid they had the barrier anyway. And the barrier was only like two feet away from the stage. So you could easily get up on the barrier and just like step on the stage. It was really dumb. And uh, the bouncers weren't even in like the area between the stage and the barrier like they normally would be. They were, they were on the stage, like kneeling down on the stage. And so, um, Murphy got on the stage to do a stage dive because he was friends with us. And this big Mexican guy grabbed him and he picked him up and he purposely threw him right into the metal barrier. He didn't try to throw him over. He purposely to hurt Murphy, like just took him and he threw him like right into the barrier. He kind of like bounced off the barrier, like into that no man's land between the barrier and the stage. And Murphy kind of like grabbed his arm and he sort of like ran off, like, you know, back into the, they didn't throw him out or anything, but he like kind of grabbed his arm or something, just ran back into the crowd. And I was thinking, who's this fucking dick bouncer that just hurt my friend? So in the song, like, you know, about 10 seconds later, he was, he was standing up at the end of the stage and I came over mid song and I kicked him off off the stage into the crowd and he 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 was like as soon as i kicked him he was super pissed like i could see him like he knocked like halfway into the crowd like his legs were sort of halfway over onto the barrier and i could see him like turning over and he was like looking at me like he was going to kill me and now i'm like fuck man i'm gonna have to fight this big mexican guy this sucks and as soon as that happened uh, the song ended, the song ended like 10 seconds later and Dan O'Mahony unplugged my guitar and he grabbed me and he took me backstage and he started taking me out the back door. And he was like, we got to get you out of here. You don't understand. 
Those guys are the LHS squad. They fucking kill everybody. Like they will shoot you. That guy's really pissed off. Like I still have my fucking guitar around me with the strap. He just unplugged it and he's taking me to the back door. And before I got to the back door, and I was just thinking like, fuck, what's, what's fucking happening here? What's fucking going? He's like, it's a gang. They're going to shoot you. Like, and before we got to the back door, the guy ran in and there's nobody. It's Dan O'Mahony, me with my guitar unplugged, wrapped around me. And this big, huge, I didn't even realize how big he was until like he came back. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, and Dan O'Mahony was like, you know, in a, like he was so panicked that it made me panic. And I saw this guy and it was like one of those, what the fuck is going to happen moments, you know? And he walked up to me and he said, Hey man, I got no beef with New York city. Yo, we're down with New York city. Like fucking Cro-Mags motherfucker. AF motherfucker. We love New York city, man. We don't got no beef with, with NYC. And I was like, yeah, motherfucker, we got no beef with LA. He's like, yeah, it's cool, man. We kind of shook hands. He was like, it's cool, it's cool. And I went back to the stage oh like the rest God. of the set. But yeah, like those guys were no joke. I mean, I don't even know. Hav, did you ever like remember Fenders or was that like? A no, that's bit? a little bit before me. That's like probably, I mean, I'm 92. So this is what, 87? You're talking 86, 87? Yeah. There no, was, no, no. There was, How long yeah. was Fenders around for? Probably till, well, I mean, Red Hot Chili Peppers played there and like yeah, Junkyard that, played there, I think, right? I was at that show. Yeah. So, and now it's uh, Holiday Inn. Yeah, I know. It's so crazy. Yeah. It's <laughs> that whole, that whole area. It's, but you I mean, even in the mid 90s, that area of Long Beach, California, there was no fucking reason to go down there. Oh, it yeah. Not it was, nice. Dude, it was so dangerous. They were like, do not walk around. You're white. Like, uh-huh. You're not Mexican. You're not Spanish. Like, you don't speak Spanish. Don't yeah. walk around. Yeah. You target on your back. It's it's crazy how different it is now. I mean, you lived there. You you know, that's there's like million dollar penthouses in that neighborhood. And it's super, super gentrified and and different but then it was like no we're not going to long beach are you crazy and you know that year like 1986 that was like the height of gang violence Uh in la in the la punk scene yeah there's that book discos out circle one la death squad Uh they all hate each other there was gunfights there's shootouts there's people that got shot people were getting stabbed left and right at fenders like it was nuts yeah Especially that year, like it started to taper off a little bit, like towards 87, 88. But, you know, that was like the height of it. And somehow or other, I, I didn't get killed. But Good for you. I could have. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Carl Mags. My, last, my last question is who's Rat Boy? Yeah, that was my question, too. You guys don't know who Rat Boy is? I don't know. I mean, maybe. And, and why did he write the lyrics to Youth Crew? And that boy was one of our best friends from the Anthrax. He was a super cool guy. And he, it's, it's funny because the Anthrax was more like older dudes. Like really we were, 
and and even the younger people like there was a like the anthrax was basically like when we first started going to the anthrax like very very first started going to the anthrax it was like me capo and everybody else in the scene was like the 76 guys the vatican commandos guys oh you mean moby yeah moby it was all guys that were like they were all like three or four years older than us like uh-huh. we were like 16 17 they were like 19 20 21 which back then is a huge difference huge difference like you know when you're 17 and somebody's 21 you're like who's this fucking guy that's still into hardcore <laughs> you know and not only that but uh they were you know it was the mood of the time that like hardcore as we know it is kind of passe and now everybody's getting into different stuff who's your do college rock metal you know, everybody was kind of like moving away from just hardcore. It was almost like hardcore just kind of died and punk was just going to become something else. Uh, and even when like, and later on, you know, at that same Anthrax, a bunch of kids from New Haven found out about it, but they were all like super punk rockers, like Mohawks and leather jackets. And, you know, they were all cool kids and they were younger. They were like our age. But they were, you know, they were listening to like the exploited and, you know, whatever, you know, punk rockers listened to back then. It, there was only like a few kids that were like, hey, man, you got you got the abuse seven inch. Hey, are you into cause for alarm? You know, hey, you got that unity seven inch. You know, there wasn't a lot of people that were that were into that. But Rap Boy was one of them. <laughs> Rap Boy was a kid. He was our age. He loved straight up hardcore. You know, he independently loved all, you know, he loved SSD. He loved DYS, you know, loved to mosh, loved to stage dive. We, we call it Rap Boy because he had like, he had like super blonde hair and like super thick blonde hair. And he had like this real kind of like buzz cut flat top. He almost looked like he was in like Depeche Mode or something. Like he had one of those kind of things. Almost like, like, oh yeah. America. But then he had a long rat tail. Oh, love it. Like, like Pete, sick of it all rat yeah. tail. Yes. Very, very new kids on the block. Yeah, but he was super into hardcore. And we loved him, man. Rap Boy, he was just funny. And we made stupid jokes and we loved hardcore. And we, like whenever we would just go around to like see seven seconds and stuff, we would all like pile into cars and, you know, go see Ignacio Brown, go see seconds, seven seconds. Rap Boy always came with us. And so uh, we really loved him. And when he found out that we were doing this band, Youth of Today, like it's, it's unbelievable. If Rap Boy could have this much played an instrument, he would 100% would have been in Youth of Today. And he would have been perfect for you today, but he just couldn't play anything and barely freaking chew gum and walk at the same time. Was he escape? Was he into skating? Yeah, he was a great skater too. He was into skating. We used to skate with him all the time. He was like one of us, you know. He was like a hardcore kid into skating and like into pure thrashy hardcore, which was sort of rare. And when we started youth today, he was like he was so into the idea of youth today. And he was even like at all of our old early practices. He's like, you guys have to do this. Oh my God, it's so cool. You guys are going to play hardcore. That, that's what this fucking scene needs. We need some fucking hardcore, <laughs> you know? And he was Dude, so, every band oh, needs a rap boy, it sounds like. In everybody their, in their needs a rap. He was, he was so into the band. He was like, 
he was constantly writing lyrics for us, constantly. Um, but the only ones that really made the cut were We Just Might and, uh, and Youth Crew. And Straight Edge Revenge, he wrote too. Oh, nice. <laughs> Yo. Wow. And where, so where's Rat Boy now? A little bit. Where's Rat Boy now? Man, I didn't see Rat Boy for 30 years. And right before the pandemic, I went to the city to go to the Thursday Night Kirtan at the Bakke Center. And I. And he was a crew jury. I parked parked way down in the Lower East Side and I was on like Avenue C or something. And I freaking saw Rat Boy. I couldn't believe it. He came up to me and he looked exactly the same. The guy does not age. He He still had a rat tail. Yeah, you look exactly the same. He didn't have a rat tail. Pretty easy. He He had a slightly less severe kind of like haircut. (laughs) But, um, I was like, oh my God, Rat Boy. I was like, Rat Boy, you don't freaking understand. Like, do you realize <laughs> that you wrote the song Youth Crew and now Youth Crew is like a genre of hardcore? Yeah. He was like, I heard kind of like, he's like, I, I know that Youth Today kind of got big and you guys were like really were one of these, you know, uh, you know, remembered bands and hardcore, and like you guys really made it like a big mark in hardcore. I was like, you don't get it. I was like, you don't get it. Youth Crew is a thing. Like there are Youth Crew bands all around the world. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, you can go to South America, like Buenos Aires, like right now, and there's like, there's like self-proclaimed Youth Crew bands. He's like, what do you mean? I was like. It's just like it's a subgenre of it's like a, an official subgenre of hardcore. It's called youth crew. Like, you know, it's old style hardcore where you know bands are straight edge and stuff and they play like Mashi hardcore. He was like, wow. And he goes, Do you remember that I wrote those lyrics for you on a fucking napkin? And I kind of like he sort of like wanted to write a song, and we must have been at like a restaurant or something. And he said, I got a good idea for a song. And he wrote them kind of stream of consciousness on a napkin and he handed it to us. And like youth crew just kind of be- became something way bigger than what we ever thought it would ever become. <laughs> but yeah, he wrote it. He wrote it probably in five minutes on a napkin. And so changed hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. Changed hardcore. Wow. Forever. <laughs> but it was so good to see him again. I should have. Um, I don't think he's on Instagram or social media or anything. Yeah, track him down. Get him to at Rat on. Boy on Instagram. Yeah. And I saw him and I was like, Rat Boy. And he was like, wow, no one's called me Rat Boy. <laughs> I don't even know he's his like, real name. Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's a name I haven't heard in years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. He's great. I love Rat Boy. Well, uh, some shinfo for you. The drummer on uh, a few every time i die records his name was rat boy and i also don't remember his name i think it was mike maybe but i cut his hair for a few years too like i was That's friends right with them. yeah they had was and he the, ba- the drummer or the bass he was player? the drummer okay oh, there's yeah. another rat boy out there's there? another rat boy rat boy too and he was from buffalo so maybe it's a new york thing or a, an east coast thing that's crazy rat boy came to plenty of our albany shows mm. 
Maybe somebody heard of him. I think it's time to kick uh hot tracks. Hot tracks. Listen, I'm gonna I'm just gonna get this out of the way. My hot track is in my top five favorite youth of today songs, I think. And it's a song that I believe is still in the band's repertoire live set. Kicks the record off. Expectations. It's a fucking banger of a hardcore song and just really sets the tone. It's got all the parts, it checks all the boxes. It's pissed. And I just think it's uh, it's such a great hardcore song. In computer speak, I'm going to control C what Javier said mm -hmm. and then control V because mm -hmm. that's exactly what I was going to say. Mm -hmm. All of it. So that's my hot track too. So that yeah, is that, not that my hot track. Yeah, what no. is it, Jason? I pledge my heart. Me, you, youth crew, love it. Super fun song. It's special to this record. There's songs that I like that are on Breakdown the Walls, but I think Youth Crew is just fun and whatever. It's got that kind of dance around vibe to it. And live, it's always fun to see. You can mosh to it. You can dive to it. You can sing along to it. It's just fun. And I think it kind of defines what Youth Today was trying to do as a movement. Intentionally or not, that's what stuck. And I always love that song. Yeah, you know, for me, there's, there's a few songs that are a little too juvenile to have stood mm. the test of time for me and and that's one of them but yeah i mean it's it's undeniably like fun and and it's fun also, to play on guitar if uh, the world is flat i grind the edge yeah like i, I love I, it with my heart i pledge but then ray does like the i'll pledge my heart it's just cool i don't know it's a fun song you know yeah. it's we we don't always play that like we probably play it maybe i don't know less than half the time when we actually do play how about we, expectations though that's that usually is in there right yeah usually yeah but we did play you know we were, we were trying to figure out the set list for this last european tour that we just that we just did uh we're, and walter was like we should really play youth crew like we never play youth crew we should play it and he kind of really wanted to play it so we played it and it was it was the highlight of the set every single night. I don't know nice. why, but people it's went nuts. so simple to sing along to, I simple. think. And just and like the, the whole vibe of this tour, it was such a it was such a great tour. It blows my mind that here we are, middle-aged men. It's almost embarrassing. We're in this band called Youth of Today, and we're going out and we're playing Europe and we, you know, we're playing all these shows. And the shows were effing incredible. Like every show is sold out. Everybody's there. It's such a good vibe. Like everybody's having a good time. And then we would play like youth crew. And it was sort of like the pinnacle of like, everybody's here. It's a positive attitude. Fuck negative negativity, you know, fuck violence, you know, fuck all that stuff. We're here. This is a positive time. And, you know, everybody would sing along with that song. And it was like, it was literally every single show was the highlight of the night. It was super cool to see. Um, I will say that my hot track, I'm going to have to go with expectations too. Mm -hmm. And you want to know why? Mm -hmm. Expectations was Capo's song that he wrote for me. Because it's really about my relationship with me and my dad. Mm -hmm. 
because Capo's family, like they had like a ton of kids and you know, their vibe was like, okay, you're 18. You go off. If you want to go to college, pay for your own college. You're like, like the vibe of his family was like, you're kicked out of the nest at 18. We have too many kids. We're not going to pay for your college. Like you're on your own. So it wasn't a big deal for Ray to go off and like do a band. Like his parents didn't care. Like mm -hmm. just expected, like you're out of the house now, you're an adult, go do whatever you want. And so it wasn't like a really, like the song isn't about him and his parents. The song is about me and my dad, because my dad gave me so much shit about not going to college and throwing my life away and like being in a hardcore band or even playing music or even having anything to do with music. You know, I remember I was so like, you know, when you're in a band, you guys know this, like you want to put out a record. Like that's one of your dreams as, as a musician. You have this thing that you can hold in your hand of these songs that you created in your freaking mind. And, you know, you wrote the music and you wrote the lyrics, you put it together and you went to the studio and you recorded this. And like, here you have this kind of like um, physical thing of something that you just dreamt up in your mind. It's almost amazing. Like, do you remember, you ever remember like that first record you did and then you got the Oh, record? absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something so magical about that moment. Like, wow. Like I manifest and, something. And even back then, like maybe the first time you saw the layout was when he was when the whole thing was done and it was in your hands because exactly. somebody else was in charge of the layout and you didn't even know what photos were going to be in there or how, how it was going to be, how loud it was going to be or anything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like when Kevin Seconds sent us back that Can't Close My Eyes record. And, you know, not a, nobody in my school was in a band that wrote their own songs. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If you were in a band, you were in some dumbass rock and roll cover band, you know, doing like really bad versions of Led Zeppelin songs. Like that's what it meant to be in like a band. Mm -hmm. Like no one actually did their own original music. So when I got that thing in my hands, you know, the Can't Close My Eyes record, I was just like, wow. Like I was, I was, I swear to God, it like, it almost brought tears to my eyes. Like I did it. I'm so into music. Somehow I managed to do a band. I always wanted to put out a record and like, here's this record. And I'm like, so proud of it. And you like, you flip it over and it's got my picture like really big on the back cover. And it was such a cool picture. And I got it. I went over to Capo's house. He got this big package from Kevin Seconds. And I got it and I came home and it was dinner time. And my brother and my dad were sitting at the dinner table and I kind of got there late. And I was like, dad, guess what? Our record came out. And I gave him the record and he kind of looked at it and he was like, Phew. and he's just kind of like, he totally fucking disregarded it. He was just like, whatever. And he kind of just like looked at it and just kind of like threw it away. And he just thought like this old music Italian dad. Yeah. <laughs> this music thing is a fucking waste of time. You know, this punk rock shit is a waste of your fucking time. And like I handed it, handed it to him, hoping for some like validation from your fucking dad. You know what I mean? There's something in everybody that wants to like, it's just hardwired in the fucking in a human being that you want to please your dad. Even if your dad's the biggest dick in the world, there's something about it. You know what I mean? It's just in us. 
And like I handed it to him thinking he's going to be fucking proud of me. And he couldn't have disregarded that thing anymore. And then like my brother said, ah, this fucking dumbass punk shit or like said something. And then they both like laughed. And man, my fucking heart sank. Like, I don't think he, to this day, it still bugs me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like one of those traumatizing events that, kind of you know reshapes your whole life and it was so funny because today just today i was talking to my daughter about this because you know my daughter just moved to new york city she's going to college at fit and i just moved her to new york city and i moved her into the apartment and you know and i was and i was i was asking her, i was like i was like you know, and I was, so, and I was so proud of her. And, you know, I was telling her how proud I was of her. And, you know, she had such a, like a great, uh, you know, a great day. And we had this kind of like real bonding thing. And she was telling me today, we were talking, you know, we talk on the phone a lot, you know, because we're really close. And now that she moved to New York and she was saying like, dad, thanks so much. Like I'm having such a great time in New York. And you, you made it so nice for me. Like you, you, you helped me out. You moved me to New York. You bought me everything I, I needed. And she was like, sincerely saying like, thanks so much. And I told her, I was like, you know, Leela, I'm really glad you appreciate it because that wasn't what it was like for me. Because I remember the day that I moved to New York City. You want to know what it was the day that I moved to New York City? First of all, I, we, Youth Today had already had a van. Um, me and Capo both pitched in and we bought a van. That, that was the one that died and we had to buy the $300 van. And my guitar and my amp that I had bought that my dad was so pissed off that I spent the money on a guitar and an amp were at Capo's house. So he packed it in the van for me. And then... Um, he came to my house to pick me up because we were moving to New York City. We had this apartment on 15th Street. And the only thing I didn't bring anything like, you know, I moved to New York City with like, you know, I moved my daughter to New York City. We went to Ikea. We bought all the furniture. I bought her all the kitchen stuff like, you know, I totally set her up. My dad was so fucking pissed that I was moving to New York City to be in a hardcore band. He was the biggest asshole to me, like the, even going up into like two weeks before I was like moving. Like he was just a grumpy asshole. Um, he was like, don't expect a fucking dime from me. I'm not buying you fucking anything. I'm not buying you a fucking bed. I'm not buying you a fucking couch. You want to be fucking Mr. Independent? You go to New York City, you fucking figure it out by yourself. Like that's how belligerent he was. It was like, it was so um, like the environment for like the whole like month before I moved was so fucking hostile. Like you couldn't even believe it, it was so painful to be in that house. And um, so the day came that I was moving. And of course, like I'm a fucking kid, like I don't have any money, you know, all the money that was that I was making, I was spending on like guitar shit. So I didn't have a, I didn't have bed. I didn't have a chair. I didn't have fucking anything to like, to, and my dad was like, you're not taking fucking anything from this house. Like, don't take your desk. Don't take your fucking chair. You're not taking anything. I bought all that shit and all that shit staying in the house. 
I literally moved with a fucking backpack. Like I had nothing. I just put a bunch of freaking t-shirts and, and a few pairs of jeans in a bag. <laughs> That's how I wrote to New York City. I didn't have anything. I didn't have a pot. I didn't have a pan. He wouldn't let me take fucking anything. Wow. And then the day that he came to pick me up, like Capo knew, like my dad hated Capo. He knew, don't come in that fucking house. Like, so he pulled up in front Why of Why didn't my- he like Capo? You know, because Capo was like the co-conspirator in this whole thing and me quitting college and, you know, dedicated my life to something as ridiculous as fucking punk it's rock. It's seriously almost like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with Bill and Ted. Like Ted's dad was the military guy that like was like didn't want him playing in Wild Stallions. And, and then Cap- uh, Capo's Bill, you're Ted. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was exactly like that. And so Capo came. And he parked on the street and we had like a long driveway. There's no way he could have pulled into the driveway, but he knew I didn't have anything to pick up. It wasn't like my dad was like, here, take the couch here, son. You're moving to New York. You know, take, let me give you some stuff to fucking help you out. It wasn't like that at all. And so as, uh, as Capo pulled up, my dad said, that fucking drifter Capo is here. Get the fuck out of the house. Like my dad actually told me that. And then my dad said, as I was walking out of the house, he goes, you're never going to make it in New York City. He goes, you think you're going to move to New York City? You don't know fucking anything about being an adult. You don't know anything about New York City. It's such a fucking dangerous place. You'll be back in two fucking weeks begging me to be back in this house. And if you think I'm going to give you a fucking dime, you can fucking forget it. This was like, this was my dad's words to me. As I'm going out of the house, moving to New York City, like at 19 years old, he's like screaming all this. And Capo can hear it. Like Capo's in the van, like listening to to me and he can hear all this stuff. And uh, that's what, that's why he wrote the song fucking, you know, Expectations was, was basically about this, like, terrible relationship I had with my dad and fucking and punk which kind of culminated into that day that we moved to New York City and my daughter was like wow that's terrible I was like yeah I'm still traumatized by it yeah Yeah, I mean that's that's I mean we're all parents here right like that's something I truly can't can't fathom fathom, but it's a different it's a different generation I'm not justifying it but like I, I, I tell you though I tell you that you know, being berated by my dad on the way out to move to New York City, it lit such a fucking fire of determination in my fucking psyche. I was like, I'm going to make it in New York City. If they'll have to fucking kill me and fucking murder me and put me in a fucking casket and ship it back to fucking Westchester before I fucking come back. Like, I'm going to make it in New York City no matter what. Like, I I was like, I'm going to make it in hardcore. I'm going to make it in fucking music. I'm going to make it on my own terms. I'm going to fucking show my fucking dad that I can do this. (laughs) You know, so it was almost part of like, it worked out in a sense because it lit this real fire in me to, to, to actually make youth of today work and make it kind of a success. It was, it was part of the whole kind of plan, I think. 
So what about when, when I know I've read before, like an interview, might've even been your interview with maybe with Norm, maybe not, um, where when Shelter got really big and he toured with No Doubt, didn't it sort of validate for him then? But at that point, you're kind of like, I've done so much, like this is one, you know, this is one aspect. I've done so many things and changed so many people's lives. I mean, because Shelter and Youth of Today certainly did. Um, but did, yeah. is that, is that, is yeah. that, am I remembering that right? Like he was what like, happened, Oh, this is cool. What happened was, was my dad never, ever, ever came to a show. He would never, he'd never come to a show. And then finally, did Capo's mom come to a show? No, no, she did. she's too, she's too brittle. She wouldn't be able to take it. <laughs> one, like one, like, you know, elbow out of the pit kind of like took her out. She was, she was pretty old. Um, but yeah, my dad would, you know, just, you know, just to, to make a point, he would never come to a show. You know what I mean? And then finally we did a stadium tour with no doubt who were the biggest, like even my dad had heard of no doubt, like, you know, and whatever, you know, late nineties, you could not, not hear no doubt, you know, they were all over the, the radio and all over TV and stuff. So we played a stadium show with them and my dad came to the show. It was the first time he ever saw me play. And then he came backstage after we played and we had a great show. We had most of the shows that we did, probably every show that we did on that No Doubt tour were surprisingly, like the crowd really liked us. We, we had really good shows. And so my dad came backstage and he was like, John, you finally made it. You finally made it. And just the way he said, finally, and I didn't say anything. I was like, yeah, thanks, dad. But in my mind, I was so pissed. Yeah. Like, like finally, like, what are you talking about? Do you know what I've done for the past 10 years? Like, you know, I was part of this whole thing that started this whole fucking youth movement, you know, of positivity and no drugs and no drinking and, you know, changed people's lives. I was like, now because I played a big show, now I finally made it because it's like some kind of mainstream bullshit. Like it was like, it just, it just was um, another sign that, his value system was just so much different than my value system. And just like, we weren't going to ever, ever, ever see eye to eye, like ever, you know? And he's, he's no longer, he's no longer with us or is he, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting because my, my dad's from the time that I left that house and just like, and literally I never, I never came back home, not once, never came back home. You know, and especially in those days, like we don't have communication like we did. Like I literally never went back home and I didn't talk to him or see him or see like my brother or my sister or like my mother. Like I just was like, fuck this crazy ass family. I'm just gonna go off and I'm just gonna do my own thing. Like no one's ever encouraged me. No one's ever, you know, tried to, you know, see what I want to do and kind of like understand what I'm trying to do. So fuck them. I'm just going to go off and I'm just going to do my thing. And so I didn't talk to any one of my family or ever go back home ever, like ever, you know, for, you know, but you know, that, that I think I saw my dad maybe once 
you know, I never went home for Christmas, never went home for anything. I think I went home for like a couple of Thanksgivings to my mom's house, but it was very, very, very little communication with my, with my family. So especially with my dad, like we were super estranged. And then you can imagine, then I joined the Hare Krishnas. Mm. That was like the nail that drove, that was like the last final nail in the coffin between me and my dad, like ever having a relationship. Like, you know, he just couldn't, he, he, he came to my wedding and that was the first time that I had seen him in freaking ages. And I remember he got there surprisingly early. He got there even, he, uh, my wedding was at 26 Second Avenue and he got there even before me. And I remember walking down 7th Second Avenue in a Doty, you know, and it's like a really nice silk Doty, you know, the shutter, the perfect T-lock that I worked on for like, you know, 45 minutes to get it perfect because it's like my wedding and everything. Right. I look like a Hare Krishna, like full on Hare. He never, he never saw me with a shaved head, Sika as a Hare Krishna before. And he was there standing outside of 26 Second Avenue. And I walked up from by myself and I was like, oh shit, there's my fucking dad. And he took one look at me in a doty. And man, I could just see it on his face. Like, he was just like, what the fuck is wrong? Like, I saw it on his face. What the fuck is wrong with my son? You know, like, where did I go wrong that here I am at my son's Hare Krishna wedding? Like, I could just see it on his face. Like, just the look of sheer disappointment and misunderstanding on his face and um we had the wedding and then we had the wedding reception and my dad showed up to the wedding reception and he stayed for probably five minutes and then he left wow and um you know so i maybe saw him i saw him a couple of times when i had kids like he's like, John, I want to, I want to meet my grandkids. And so we went and, and kind of saw him, but it was only maybe like, maybe like two times. And um, then he came to the, he came to that no doubt show. And then I saw him a couple of times when I had kids, but I really didn't speak to him or see him like my whole entire life. And then I knew that he was, um, I knew he was sick, like his whole last, his whole, um, you know, last year of his life, he was pretty much in the hospital for like a whole year. He was having heart attack after heart attack, after heart attack, after heart attack. I actually saw, I, I went to see him one time in the hospital and I couldn't believe it. He had just had a triple bypass surgery and he, he got out of his surgery and his sister, my aunt walked in and she had a bag of McDonald's and she was like, here you go, your favorite food. And I'm just thinking, he just had the fucking, you know, animal plaque and cholesterol just like scraped out of his heart. And now you're going to give him McDonald's? Like, I was just thinking like, this is insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so one day I got the call, I got the call from the doctor and he said, hey, I'm, I'm your dad's doctor. He's dying. His vital signs are plummeting. Um, if you ever want to talk to your dad again, you better hop on the next plane and you better fly down to Florida. Oh. And he says, he, he said, your brother and your sister, your brother and your sister are already here. And so I literally went out 
you know, just kind of like bought a ticket practically at the airport. I left like an hour later and I went down to, uh, and I went down to Florida and my, and I walked in the hospital and my brother and sister were already there and they had already been there for like a day or something. And uh, it was so weird because my dad was kind of in and out of consciousness. And even when he kind of came to, he was like, you couldn't really have a conversation with him. And they said that, like later on when I talked to my brother and sisters, they were like, John, you don't understand. It was so weird. Like you walked in the door of that hospital and all of a sudden dad kind of sat up and he was like so lucid. He was probably the most lucid that he had been in like months. And even the doctors were saying like, you know, hey, you know, don't expect your dad, you know, to be all there and stuff like that. I walked in there, my dad was 100% completely lucid and present. And like, you could have like a conversation with him. And I walked in and he was like, John, he goes, come here, come here. And I like sat by his bed and he said, I wanna tell you something. And he said, I know that we never saw eye to eye. And you have to understand that when you were into all that punk rock stuff, when you were a kid, I just thought you were throwing your life away and I thought you were never going to get a job and you were never going to be able to support yourself. And maybe you were going to wind up on the streets. And so that's why I, 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 you know, I didn't want that for you. And that's why I was like, I was so dismissive with you. And I thought at that time, you know, just for tough love, I had to kind of cut things with you. And he goes, I just wanted to let you know that I did it because I kind of just didn't want to validate what I thought you were doing was you know, as throwing your life away. And he said, and, you know, later on, when you joined the Hare Krishnas, like, I, I just I just didn't understand what you were doing. He goes, but I got to tell you. You know, in the past few years. You know, even though we haven't spoken, I Google your name sometimes. And so many nice things come up about you. Like so many people say so many nice things and people actually say like, you know, your band changed their life and, you know, you did all this stuff and, you know, people were so appreciative of your music. And I just want, I'm so glad you came down because I just wanted to tell you how proud I am of you. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's great. And like, literally he said, and I was just like, you know, I was practically like fighting the chance because I'm telling you, there's something in you. Even if you think your dad is the biggest dick in the whole world, there's just something in you that you just want your dad to be proud of you. And like, it was such a healing moment to hear that he had finally wrapped his head around and kind of like appreciated what I tried to do with my whole entire life. And literally one of the last words that he said to me was like, I'm, I'm really proud of you. And I was like, thanks dad. And I kind of grabbed his hand and almost immediately after that, he was like, I'm really tired. Like even just to kind of like sit up and like tell, tell me that he like got really tired. And then he like went back to sleep and he never, he never was like lucid again for, for the right. Like he died pretty much like, I think he died like two days later. Um, 
he never ever was like lucid enough to, to have a conversation. But when I walked in, he was 100% there. And, and my brother was like, wow, that was so weird. Like he just kind of stood up, he kind of just got up in bed and he had this conversation with you. And we were just like, wow. Pretty miraculous stuff. It's pretty no, crazy. Yeah. Crazy I don't stuff. think there's really, I don't even know what, what to say. There's not really, we, we can't really follow that up with anything else. That, that was incredible. I thank you for sharing that. Honestly, yeah, so, yeah, that's expectations. Expectations wasn't written about cap. It, re, expectations was written about what he thought, you know, what he, what he thought my attitude towards my dad should be. And he kind of wrote that song almost for me. And so that will forever and always be one of my favorite Youth Today songs. You know, just because of the story it told and just the fact that Capo kind of wrote it for me. I kind of found that like a little touching because he was- Oh, it's he, very touch, it's super touching. He was touching. privy to the whole thing super touch. With, with, with my dad. Yeah. <laughs> and and so, then real quick, were, were you the oldest? No, Capo's a year okay. old. No, no, I mean like in your family. You said you had siblings. No, I was, I was a middle kid. I had an older oh, brother, okay. and younger the, sister. The tough middle kid. Yeah, tough right. kid, middle kid. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not, but I know. I know middle kids. But uh, well, I don't know. You can't. Like I said, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, we can't talk that. that. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's leave it. Let's leave it there before I have some kind of like mental breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually, I, I remembered, I wrote it down on this piece of paper, what I was going to ask you about for a little bonus. But honestly, I don't have time right now. I have something else I have to do. So I'm going to call you again and talk to you about what's written on this paper. And we're going to yeah. have as a bonus. Oh, surprise me. Yeah. I because th is this the, I mean... You played on a couple songs on Quest for Certainty, but not the whole record. So this is maybe the last full interview with us, right? Uh, well, there's the Judge discography. Okay. Yes. Yes. And um, the youth in like today, three years. Seven inch with the in like uh, Partridge seven, family in like seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he has so a Partridge family one. The way we're going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'll be a quick interview. Well, yes. Well, We'll find something to talk we'll about. We'll find reasons, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm always down to talk shelter because I want to I want to do an episode about attaining supreme, a bonus episode, because that's that's my jam. Yeah, but, for uh, sure. Yeah. All right, well, guys. Parmananda, right, yeah. thank you so much. Yes. Always a always pleasure. A pleasure, man. Always a pleasure. Yeah, yes. great. I wish we could like get together and hang out. I know we I should do, do now. You could be our next uh anytime you want to be a guest host. If there's another record coming up and you want to ask someone else questions and you want to be a host on this. Yeah, so, for sure. Just come just, on. Just let me just I'm your servant, man. <laughs> come up, you want me to help? You want me to be a guest host? Just let me know. All right. We'll do. Thank Ooh, you so for much. Time. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, have a great and uh, talk to you soon. Harry Bull. What's everybody? Uh, what's up? What's up, everybody? That's what I was gonna say. Uh, remember me from before? It's Javier, and uh, I am just coming back to tell you once again that if you are not a patron, if you are not a supporter of us on Patreon.com, then right now you can't hear us talk for like an extra hour or so about our feelings and thoughts and stuff about this record and so much more. We really, really know how to talk and we're good at it. 
But let me tell you about some of the people who do support us on Patreon. Our top tier patrons right now, Billy Tennell, Brandon Gavell, Brian Buskey, Brian Skiffington, Brooklyn, Cesar Falcon, Chad Keplinger, Cliche John, David Palmer, Dirk Focused, JPD2, John Cowell, Quiet Keith, Nate of Head to Wall Fame, Ryan Walker, Tad Payton, Tanner Spaulding, Tim Shear, Tyler of the Life and Death Brigade, Siren Records, and Dollar Slice Bootlegs. So, if you want to join the ranks of those illustrious people, please go to www.whereitwentpodcast.com and find out how you can do that. Otherwise, we will see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening this far. Bit up, Bo.